mental illness is so prevalent in our population. And more recently, there's been so, so much more of a focus on it. But yet there is not a whole lot of uh, published work that's out there that is looking at these disparities and looking into this really important patient population. Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. the recent attention to inequities in the surgical community and beyond, sometimes the invisible disparities go unnoticed. Mental health and its impact on surgical outcomes has been relatively poorly studied, and so on today's episode, we invited the authors of a new narrative review on the topic to talk about what they found. The title of the paper is Improving Surgical Quality for Patients with Mental Health Illness, a Narrative Review, and was published this August in 2021 in Annals of Surgery. Dr. Rebecca Afford, Dr. J.J. Sidhu, and Dr. Murad Hamid joined Dr. Ball and I to discuss mental health and its impact on surgical outcomes. We would love to hear your thoughts. What does your institution do to better manage surgical patients with concomitant mental health disease? Email us at podcast.cgs at gmail.com or on Twitter at CanJSurge. Well, we're so excited to have three really, really interesting guests on uh, Cold Steel today. Um, thank you to each of you for, uh, for joining us. I think we're going to talk about a really important topic here. Before we do that, though, um, I, I would love it if Rebecca, followed by JJ, and then, of course, uh, you know, friends and listeners to the show know more at Hamid very well. Um, I was wondering if you could uh, introduce yourself and just sort of give us your, your career path and how you ended up in, uh, in BC. I'll get started. I'm Rebecca. I'm currently an R2 in the, the general surgery program at UBC. Um, I did my undergraduate training at Queen's University. After growing up in Nelson, British Columbia, I took a year off actually after my um, undergraduate degree and I, I lived in Australia. Um, but afterwards, I was accepted into UBC for medical medical school, sorry. And I did my training in the Northern Medical Program uh, in Prince George. And I'm uh, JJ Sidhu. I'm uh, a psychiatrist, a consul liaison psychiatrist uh, here at Vancouver General Hospital, uh, which means I mainly work on the medical and, and surgical units. Um, I'm also the department head for psychiatry Vancouver <clears throat> Acute and Community and the medical director um, for uh, mental health and substance use here at Vancouver Acute, Tertiary and uh, Urgent Services. Hey, Chad and Amir, it's Murad Hamid. I am a trauma surgeon intensivist at the Vancouver General Hospital and I'm the head of the Division of General Surgery um, at VGH and at the University of British Columbia. And uh, just wanted to say um, how thrilled I am to be uh, with you both um, and with this, uh, with this team. Uh, thank you for having us. Well, as always, we're always delighted to have uh, you on the show and our listeners love having you on the show, and we're so delighted to have uh, JJ Sidhu and, uh, of course, the illustrious Rebecca Afford on the podcast with us. And we really have a great topic lined up for us today. And we're going to center our discussion mostly around a paper that's published in the Annals of Surgery. Rebecca, uh, you're the lead author on this paper, and uh, congratulations again for all the hard work that you put into this and for getting this published and accepted to annals. What is exactly interested you in this topic and why, why did you get into this? 
I just like to start out by thanking everybody who is co-authors with me. This wouldn't have been possible without them. Um, and I'm really excited for this paper to undergo publication. In terms of the title of the paper, it's called Improving Surgical Quality for Patients with Mental Illness, a Narrative Review. And what it is, it's a systematic review looking at uh, patients with mental illness and their surgical outcomes and how that compares to their counterparts uh, who undergo the same surgeries um, but do not have mental illness and the disparities in their care. Uh, how I got interested in this topic, uh, I think started predominantly when I was on trauma and that was my very first rotation of residency. But what I've started to notice on trauma is that some people presented to the trauma bay, if they had a theatric illness, sometimes when they rolled into our trauma bay, that was their first presentation um, of their mental illness. And unfortunately it ended in a trauma that we would manage. And the other part of that was also in seeing firsthand their post-operative care and um, just anecdotally seeing that these patients staying a little bit longer in hospital with post-operative complications. And, and I really under, didn't understand why. That, that, that's a great story, Rebecca. And I think we all know that, you know, research projects that come to fruition and are published in targets like Annals of Surgery usually start you know, the, the seed of them is usually something that we, we see that's clinically interesting or unexplained on the, on the, on the ward or in the, the operating theater or in the hospital in general. So that's great. I'm going to focus you a, a little bit here and ask you some specific questions. So one of the interesting things about this review is that it's a narrative review rather than a systematic review. And I think, you know, certainly Morad and I have published a lot of those and I'm sure JJ has too. Can you explain to our listeners that maybe the difference, what makes this a narrative review as opposed to a tradi more traditional, either meta-analysis or systematic review? Yes, so what we did with this paper um, was do the classic review in, in looking through uh, the big databases like um, uh, Ovid and Medline and uh, the Cochrane uh, review files and we ended up pulling those papers um, and looking through abstracts like you would in a systematic review. But from those papers, what we ended up doing was looking for underlying themes and um, recurrent trends that kept uh, coming up with the papers. What were some of the holes in the in the methodology or some of the concerns you had, um, you know, that you described in in your uh, in your manuscript? Um, so in terms of things that we found that were, were holds was overall, we were only able to find 19 papers uh, that gave us a good idea or that had a good look at uh, comparing surgical outcomes between patients with mental illness and patients who did not. So mental illness is such so prevalent in our population. And more recently, there's been so, so much more of a focus on it. Um, but yet there is not a whole lot of uh, published work that's out there that is looking at these disparities and uh, looking into this really important patient population. I think that would be the, the largest thing that we found. Another thing that we found is a lot of the papers that are out there are looking at specific cohorts, um, such as bariatric surgery, where um, psychiatric care is uh, a big part of their um, surgical process in terms of preoperative planning and postoperative counseling. Um, but that wasn't exactly the, the patient population that we were looking for um, and that uh, we were targeting with, with our definition of mental illness. Yeah, that's, that's well stated. J, JJ, can, can we ask you, what's your sense over a longer period of time, maybe than, than Rebecca's been uh, involved in this topic, as to why there is such uh, a paucity of sort of well-described studies, and, and I would suggest maybe even study in general um, in the overlap between surgical care and mental illness? Yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting question. And um, in my particular area in psychiatry, it's a challenge in itself. We're often looking for papers that describe the patient in front of us where we have a, a medical or a surgical condition and a, a mental health condition that are interfacing. Uh, but when you look at the papers, um, many of the studies exclude uh, unwell patients that are unwell, if they're looking from a physical health standpoint, if they're looking primarily at a mental health outcome, 
Uh, they'll exclude uh, those patients that have um, that are over the age of 65. Um, so that's that's it does it, the 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 group of uh, or the the patient population that we're often seeing in hospital uh, is not what um, historically uh, researchers have been examining. So much of much of what we're seeing in terms of the literature is pioneering, probably related to that reason. Um, I think as mental health is now becoming more of a discussion point uh, in the media, in uh, society as large, uh, at large, and even and within healthcare, people are asking these questions. So my hope is that we're gonna be seeing more of these papers. Yeah, it's such an interesting and rich area of study. And I think you find a lot of uh, benefit from actually studying the intersection of two different fields. And in some ways, it's kind of surprising that this hasn't been done more. And one of the things that I thought super interesting from the study um, was that like the, the outcomes were quite dramatic for uh, in, in terms of the differences between patients with mental illness versus those that didn't in terms of surgical outcomes. You know, to, get, to quote one uh, data point from the paper, we talk about the fact that the incidence of perforation uh, in appendicitis with patients who had schizophrenia was 53 to 66% of patients with mental illness compared to 17 to 30% in controls uh, in one included study. And uh, this, you, the, the review highlights so many different ways in which surgical care and surgical outcomes continues to be a problem for patients with mental illness. And I think we're, we're unique to have you on this team as, as someone who gets to straddle both those worlds and is involved in both of those uh, sides of that uh, equation. So can you break this down for us a little bit? Is, it, is, this a, is this a provider problem that we don't know how to deal with patient illness? Or is this a patient problem where, where, where patients don't have access to care or a bit of both? Can you break that down for us a little bit more, JJ? Yeah, great question. Um, and it's probably multifactorial is my sense. Um, you know, if I, I, I'd probably look at it more from a patient perspective, uh, uh, a provider perspective and a social or a systemic level. Uh, at, a, at a patient level, uh, certainly there are inherent aspects of the individual's condition or, or symptomatology that might be making, um, making, making access to care an issue. Uh, patients might present with anxiety or even paranoia that make, uh, could really uh, ch uh, make a, an examination of a patient difficult. Um, many individuals who suffer from mental illness have had trauma through the system, through the healthcare system. Uh, and that speaks into some of the uh, stigma or the structural stigma that's embedded within healthcare. Um, there's also issues with lack of insight in some particular cases. Uh, associated with certain conditions that also uh, make um, presenting to um, their medical providers an issue. Um, for, on a on a provider level, we you know that that's that's something that um, might manifest in the form of underestimating risk associated with mental illness and and surgical outcomes. Um, if somebody's stable with uh, depression or schizophrenia or appears to be and and uh, they're coming in for an appendectomy or some sort of surgery uh we might we might say to ourselves that okay maybe there's not a lot of risk and and uh whereas uh, there's potential for some of these medications complicating um post-operative periods and whatnot so uh, those are those are things to take into consideration lack of screening um for mental illness and and that's that's fairly, a, 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 that's a pretty common thing, I think, in healthcare. Like we're, it's the way that we're set up, we're, we're somewhat siloed. So, you know, people, understandably so, people are coming in for surgery. We're really focused on the task at hand. Um, and sometimes, uh, or often we're not considering things like mental illness or depression or, or some of those other aspects. It might be on the chart, but uh, in terms of how we're, how we're managing it in, in front of us, it might not be a, a priority, priority in the moment. Um, at, a, at a systems level, um, we, have, we have issues. Um, we have people with mental illness struggle uh, with many of the, uh, or, or have struggled with a lot of the issues with social determinants of health, such as poverty, um, or higher rates of poverty, higher rates of um, 
uh, housing security, insecurity, uh, even food insecurity, um, people with um, chronic mental uh, psychotic illnesses, you might find them in uh, regions that are uh, or it's challenging to access healthcare as well. So there's a whole host of um, issues that I think make it uh, make access to care a challenge. Um, you know, interestingly, uh, we, bariatric surgery was not included uh, as a population in this particular paper. Um, I, I, I was connected to a bariatric um, a bariatric outpatient clinic uh, here in uh, the Vancouver region, and I did a lot of screening of folks that were um, considering that, uh, considering those related surgeries, and I was um, I was blown away by the amount of uh, depression, the amount of trauma, um, past history of sexual abuse in that population. Um, so, and, and certainly um, this impacted uh, outcomes. Uh, we know that people with depression are, um, are, are, are less likely to be compliant um, with all forms of medical treatment. Um, so there's an association there. Um, people who've had um, um, that type of trauma also, um, uh, you know, might, might, might follow up might be difficult, interfacing with their um, care providers post-operatively. So some people get lost to follow up. Uh, so some of the inherent challenges, I think. You know, there's there's so many great things in what you just said that we could potentially unpack, but I, I want to drill down if you, if, if you have time on a, on a couple of them. You know, from a simple sort of surgical brain uh, like mine, intuitively it seems clear that the reason that, for example, perforations with a bowel obstruction or appendicitis, for example, um, would would be more common in in patients with mental illness seems to be related to a lot of the issues you talked about delay in presentation delay in care and so on but the equivalent part of it that really is interesting uh, to me is the the back-end component so to look at these patients in terms of hospital acquired issues whether that's you know overall sepsis rates infection rates acute kidney injury icu admission rates i mean Re Re rebecca's list is is quite long in terms of them having poor outcomes. I'm curious what, you know, when the rubber meets the road in, a, in the hospital, um, why you think that that truly does happen? Um, and then potentially some of the things that, you know, we're clearly missing as a surgical or medical or, or post-operative care uh, a team. I think when people are coming into hospital uh, and have a history of mental illness, the literature does show that uh, and I think we mentioned it even in this study that people are less likely to order diagnostic tests. Patients are less likely to get certain interventions. Um, one, why that happens, it's one can speculate, but um, it probably relates to, uh, in part, some of that that uh, that stigma that we we see um, toward mental mental health clients. Um, it also um, speaks to some of those challenges that I mentioned around um, examining the patient. Um, the, the conditions themselves have an inherent, um, there's been some inherent differences. For example, schizophrenia, we know that um, glucose uh, metal metabolism is, uh, is somewhat different. Yeah, there's some changes there. Uh, inflammatory or inflammation and wound healing. Um, is different in, in patients suffering from significant mental illness. Uh, there's also associations with uh, uh, multiple medical, or, or sorry, different conditions have higher rates of mental illness. And we'll see that in, in uh, neurological conditions, in, in arthritis, in diabetes, um, uh, cancer. Uh, so you're more likely to have um, um, depression or anxiety and and we can understand that we can we understand that um that, that that makes a lot of sense just a lot of face validity there um core morbid substance use um that makes it challenging in terms of 
um, one, the, um, the management of patients who are, who are in hospital, they might be struggling with addictions issues, withdrawal um, aspects, adherence to care, um, and then the medication side effects. So the medications that we prescribe, uh, especially in psychotic illnesses, are, can be pretty heavy duty. Um, they come with a whole host of um, side effects including uh, metabolic disturbance. You'll see um, in potentially increased risk of aspiration, cardiac uh, arrhythmias, decreased uh, or increased levels of um, uh, potential for, uh, or sorry, a decrease in seizure threshold. Um, so all these, all these aspects could potentially contribute to a worse outcome in hospital. You know, one of the things that Amir and I were really excited to ask you specifically is, I think on the trauma side of things, the injury side, the injury services, we're, we work with our psychiatric colleagues very, very closely. I, I can't think of a day where we don't have a psychiatrist, for example, at the Foothills Hospital wandering by the trauma ward. They're always involved, as you point out, in a large percentage of our patients. But I'm not sure in really thinking about you know the work Re Rebecca has done that we do as good a job for the emergency general surgery or access services. and. And from there, I, I, I could take it even beyond that to, as you would guess, orthopedic surgery, for example, plastic surgery, a, a whole bunch of inpatient, you know, general hospital services. I'm curious what your, what your uh, bias is in terms of sort of when you like to be called, who you like to be called about, and, and how you view that interaction with surgical services in general. My, again, my, my bias is that we're probably underutilizing and, and under-consulting our, our mental health uh, experts like yourself. Yeah, fair enough. I um, I joke. I, I I or I half joke. I, I say that surgeons or most surgeons that I've met would make excellent psychiatrists. Uh, you know, you all um, you deal with scenarios where people are um, really facing some of the worst circumstances in their lives. And uh, the amount of compassion that I've seen from surgeons that I work with and the res surgical residents um, uh, speaks, it's quite impressive. And the, the, in terms of the question around consultation, under consulting and whatnot, um, that's, that's, that's an interesting question. You know, larger, larger institutions will have psychiatry or services that will, uh, or consultation liaison services like we do here at Vancouver General Hospital. You might not have that at, at smaller centers. So this, this, I guess this concept of resource scarcity and you could, you know, maybe you don't want to burden, overburden a consultation service. It might be that feeling or perspective. Um, there might be that it might also feed into that um, under recognition of of uh, illness or the feeling that uh, a stable psychiatric condition doesn't warrant um, uh, calling a psychiatrist. Um, but you know, there there are scenarios where I think even in a in a situation where we have a quote unquote stable uh, individual uh, that it might be worthwhile getting getting uh, someone like myself involved. Uh, a concrete example um, would be uh, perhaps a patient who has schizophrenia and is on the antipsychotic clozapine. Uh, clozapine is a somewhat complicated medication. It's um, we we use it in those individuals that have refractory psychosis or have been through um, a few other medications and 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 they've um, those have not worked. Uh, in, in, the, in, in states of inflammation, which um, could be uh, in, could occur during a post-operative period, clozapine levels will increase and this might manifest in sedation, over sedation and increase things like the risk of aspiration. Uh, so this, this, is, um, this is something where we're commonly, we're commonly seeing patients and, and it's not always recognized as a, con a concern. So, uh, on our, our service, the, a lot of teaching occurs with uh, with some of the other the other specialties, and and fortunately we we're lucky that we have really good relationships like services like our our surgical with our surgical colleagues and whatnot. Um, so in, in other times, um, 
at other times we're quite comfortable of home surfaces and, and surgical surfaces having a go uh, at trying to manage um, situations and if they're if they're comfortable with that and and um, need some backup or or just a, a quick call we're we're we're, we're happy to guide folks through different scenarios. At VGH, we feel really lucky. Um, Rebecca, I first met Rebecca on our service. She rotated through uh, the consultation li liaison service at VGH. And uh, historically, uh, at least for the past decade, and I think even longer, we've had um, psychiatry residents come through, but we also have had uh, first-year surgical and first-year neurology residents. Um, come through our service. And uh, this is great. Uh, we, we really enjoy having these, these off-service residents come through, but, and, um, and it, you know, and hopefully they, they hopefully they, they learn something and, and we jokingly call it delirium bootcamp for the surgical residents. Uh, we keep it pretty focused uh, on things like delirium management and, and management of sedation and um, related things that would be helpful for a surgeon uh, in practice. Our perspective is we want surgeons want to operate and we want to keep them in the in the operating theater. And um, if we can we can impart some 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 things that would help them do that and manage patients on the ward quickly then uh, and effectively, then um, you can see it as a as a good thing. Uh, but another another really great benefit of it is is this um, uh, getting to know us and and building up the relationships uh, between services so uh, Rebecca uh, is no longer with us and it's been a while but uh, she has these connections to the psychiatry service and and, uh, and our hope is that uh, that it's it's that much easier to consult us to pick up the phone um, and our sense is that you know, many of the things that happen um, that are positive in a very large system are, are relationship-based, and um, and and a big center can feel small. And and in the end, I think that's a positive outcome for for the for the patients. Um, so that's that's kind of a long-winded uh, answer to your uh, question, Chad. Uh, so um, really, I think it speaks into. You know, we're we're always happy to help our colleagues. That's what we're here for as a, as a consultation service, and uh, but we're also um, keen on building capacity uh, in in teaching others and and teaching people um, teaching other folks how to fish and 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 breaking some of those barriers to care, such as um, uh, through through relationship uh, fostering relationships. Yeah, I just want to comment, you know, having come from Calgary and, and having uh, seen the consult um, psychiatry liaison service, it's really a great service. You know, I think, you know, it's not just the, the service that we call for when people have suicidal ideation, which is sort of the, the mental model that I had coming out of residency. You know, really the service has been so helpful in a variety of situations, such as post-operative delirium. Uh, and so certainly I've learned a lot from, from seeing the consult service uh, see my patients uh, here in, in fellowship. I think it's time now to really roll into to getting a, a broader discussion on where do we go from here? Where do we take this uh, these results, which I think many of us probably felt intuitively make sense, right? I think we've all had those experiences like, like Rebecca talked about at the top of the podcast where we see how mental illness ex inter intersects with so many of the outcomes from surgery and uh, in medicine in general. Uh, and so I think it, now is the time to really kind of dig deep on where do we go from here. So Rebecca, you have a great table in the paper, table two, uh, that kind of outlines uh, some of the potential solutions and uh, strategies for mitigating uh, these ne negative outcomes. In broad strokes, can you kind of walk us through some of the main strategies that m one might propose uh, to help mitigate the, the inequities in, in care? Uh, yeah, so for each theme that arose during our narrative review, we um, came up with potential solutions to address each of these. Um, so our first theme was access. So how can we better get patients to come to medical services uh, with their surgical uh, illnesses? And we found that part 
part of that would be relationship building and making sure that uh, patients feel comfortable uh, coming to the healthcare system with their concerns. Uh, and part of that would be creating a, a primary care home for these patients where um, they would be able to have their age-specific screening done for them to have their mental illness um, care kind of uh, uh, liaise between their community um, health, mental health care workers, as well as all of their other medical concerns that may be underlying there, as well as, as Dr. Sidhu pointed out there, they often have comorbid um, medical uh, illnesses as well. Um, and treating mental illness like we would for um, any other type of medical uh, comorbidity. So for our patients, let's say that have diabetes, we want to make sure that their diabetes is optimized before they come into surgery. So making sure these patients' mental illness is optimized in the same way that we'd be monitoring their A1Cs and their glucose preoperatively and postoperatively, we would have that same kind of model uh, for their mental health um, illnesses as well. Um, and part of that too, in engaging them in their care is also uh, calling on their social supports, whether that's family or friends, um, to help them to support this individual throughout their care. Um, and having those uh, family and friends in their social network, uh, they're both as allies in their care and both uh, as allies for us to turn to when we need some help uh, or guidance in, in, in their loved one's care. And then second would be the outcomes part of uh, the themes that came up uh, in our narrative review. Um, so knowing that these patients are predisposed to worse post-operative outcomes, uh, making sure that the entire surgical team, so residents, uh, staff, nursing, OTPT are all aware that these patients are predisposed to that. And so having an education piece around um, monitoring and providing prophylaxis whenever possible to prevent uh, any negative outcomes that these patients might face in their hospital stay. Um, and because they are, especially in, in our big tertiary quaternary centers are um, very supported in terms of all of the allied healthcare professionals that are uh, available to them. Also using that as a way to engage them back to community and having uh, those types of community supports, both for their surgical uh, concerns, their mental illness concerns, as well as building that primary care um, base for them to um, build the rest of their uh, healthcare and um, future healing from. Dr. Hamid, I really want to get your insights now as to where we can go with this. You know, it's interesting when we think about, for example, internal medicine and the pre-admission clinic, you know, that it has sort of wavered, right, over the over the years. I think we had a much lower threshold to send people to the pre-admission clinic uh, to have them optimized for their, you know, various comorbidities. And, and maybe now we're backing off uh, on some of the testing that we used to do. But clearly in other areas, we, things are uh, not being well looked after, such as mental illness. So how does this get operate, operationalized for, uh, for a, a department of, of surgery? Like, um, you know, is, is, should everybody be seen by or screened for psychiatric illness prior to getting an operation? Where do you kind of see things going on a cultural and organizational level? I've been interested in the social determinants of health for a long time. And um, our groups over the years have done lots of studies measuring problems with access to care or outcomes uh, of care in areas like um, violence-related injury or multi-system trauma or critical care or acute care surgery. Um, we've measured the, the, the risks of having um, those conditions based on the social determinants of health. And we've also measured access to health systems like trauma systems, for instance, where you know, we identified that 7 million people in Canada don't have access to or early access to level one or two trauma centers within the golden hour. And when we wrote those studies and published them, it seemed so big and so alarming to measure disparities and, and to show that these disparities exist to, to confirm our, um, our feeling that there are disparities and even in Canadian healthcare. But now just measuring it is not enough. Like after the measurement comes the real hard work of actually changing things. And that, that's always been a, a, 
daunting and maybe even insurmountable challenge to us. But I think what we're seeing now, and uh, JJ referred to this, is that we're at this moment in history where it's no longer acceptable just to measure disparities uh, without doing something about it. I mean, we have Black Lives Matter and anti-racist movements and the Me Too movement. And what we learn from them is that that's just the first step of a tough struggle to change culture and to actually change uh, experience and reduce disparities. And I, one of the things I love about Rebecca's approach was exactly that table too, which is, you know, the paper says, here's these, you know, glaring uh, disparities according to um, mental illness, but here's what the papers say that we can do about it. Things like, you know, multidisciplinary approaches or disposition or studying community-based resources. Um, so that's that's a start. That's a start. But then, you know, how do you do this? How does a busy surgeon actually, you know, um, execute on this to actually change the, the experience, the access, the outcomes of patients? And I think part of it is being sensitive to them and being aware of these problems. But I think the other part is exactly what you said, Amir. It's it's uh, team building and systems redesign. I think we really have to fundamentally change the way our teams interact and redesign um, our, our systems. And um, that, that's the way that a busy surgical service can potentially sort of bend uh, bend the arc uh, uh, of this, this problem with disparities and um, mental illness being one of them. And so um, in, in BC, uh, I, I'm sure you're aware about this, Amir, but the BC Patient Safety and Quality Council has a has a uh, health matrix for quality, and so you know every surgeon cares about quality. The thing is, how do you define quality? And that group defines quality as the normal things that you'd expect, like safety, uh, appropriateness, uh, efficacy, efficiency, things like that. But within that same framework, there's other dimensions of quality, like accessibility, um, respect, equity. And so if we take an approach to quality that includes things like accessibility, respect, and equity, we're starting to redesign a different kind of, of, uh, of health system. Um, and in fact, um, the American College of Surgeons um, <clears throat> and uh, the NIH released a statement that without access, there is no quality. Like how can we even measure the performance of our systems if we're not ensuring that everybody gets uh, gets access, um, so it's a it's basically it's 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 not a nice to have or a luxury. It is a fundamental. It's a foundation of quality to ensure things like access, respect, and equity. And so, in our in our group in our division, um, our health systems redesign has taken the form of something called value based healthcare, in which what we've done is we've deconstructed our division. Um, at least at BGH and St. Paul's, into um, 16 small multidisciplinary units. And each unit is charged with um, creating objectives and key results, and then collecting data to measure performance on those objectives and key results. And we also have in our division, um, as you know, Amiri, part of it, the Cultural Safety Committee. And each of our clinical units um, is, it, is or will be advised by our cultural safety committee about collecting at least one metric on, on um, equity, access, um, social determinants related outcomes. Um, and I think there's something really, um, there's some potential there. But again, th those units will measure these problems perhaps um, and they can draw attention to them, but then how do they actually change them? And, you know, we, we stalled there for a while, but what we realized is we don't have to do it alone. Um, every hospital has, um, you know, physician-led quality improvement programs or team-based quality improvement programs. Um, a lot of hospitals now have diversity, equity, inclusion offices and um, Abor Aboriginal health teams. So once you create a framework within your group, you can then tap into resources in in the environment that will help to provide sort of a more holistic approach to um, addressing disparities. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, um, Amir and Chad, but that's kind of the direction of our thinking and what we started to do to try to really take some of these lessons and, and, and make a difference with them.
let me divert it. And, you know, it's the question I ask you often, I think, on a lot of different topics over the past couple of years on this podcast. What, how do you get started in an environment um, where you don't have a, um, an informed, uh, motivated, nuanced leader like yourself? Maybe you're in a small town in rural Canada. Maybe you're in Calgary, uh, as you know, as JJ kind of sort of insinuated, without a, a a psychiatry team available to you. How do you how do you get folks motivated and get folks started? And then also, you know, as as I always like to ask you, how do you address the maybe the naysayers who don't see the foundational importance of this topic? that surrounds mental illness as you and as many of our larger surgical societies have now begun to comment on? In my life, I've been blessed to work with people who, you know, always ask why not? And, you know, let's, let's go, let's do it. And, um, uh, you know, I, I include everyone on this um, podcast in that, in that category. Um, you know, I, I think optimistically, I think everybody wants to do the right thing. And, um, a lot of people put on their website um, what they know is the right thing. They have statements about DEI and about Aboriginal health. And so the, 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 um, there's a will to, to, do, to, to make healthcare more equitable. And, and it is, you could say, it's one of the core principles of Canadian healthcare um, or healthcare in general that, you know, I know in trauma systems and in other surgical systems, um, identifying vulnerability and care, and caring for it is a fundamental um, priority. So th there's a will to do it, um, and I think that that as as grassroots providers, um, we have to hold people who 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 draft these statements accountable to those statements. And um, you know, I used to think that if you take a problem to administration, they'll help you solve it, but what I'm realizing more and more is that you have to come with a pretty finished solution and do it on a shoestring budget. Um, they'll endorse, your, your hospital leadership will endorse it most likely because they want to see it done. And then they might find some in-kind resources to help you, or they might link you to uh, other providers with an interest in this area, or you might find some sparks of, uh, of creativity in, in the group around you. And um, I think that's how these team-based quality improvement activities start. Uh, you sometimes want to get a grant or you know expect a budget for this, but you can do a lot by tapping into the, the creativity around you and, and um, bringing people on board uh, to solve these problems. That, that's, I guess, kind of a theory because um, we're only starting down this pathway, but we've certainly seen you know, a tremendous amount of support for this, um, not only in our hospital, but across our health region. I think people respect uh, what what physicians and what surgeons say a lot, and if we uh, if we are passionate advocates, um, you know, it's very hard for someone to say that that's not an important priority. Yeah, if I may comment, um, JJ here, uh, you know, the findings of these study, I think, or studies like this, will resonate uh, with many people. Um, these are these are big numbers. These are big differences and, and disparities. Mental health issues being ubiquitous. You know, every family, every every person you know probably knows somebody who's um, greatly impacted. And if people are coming to hospital and their outcomes are, are are negative, much more negative compared to the average person, I think um, my hope is that people are going to pay pay attention. Uh, just looking at just looking at the lifespan of individuals with significant mental illness, it's in the order of 10 to 20 years less than the average Canadian. Uh, me that, for that, me, that number was, has always been shocking. Um, and that's, that's in a country like Canada. And, and, and if, we're, if we're put, oh, these kinds of numbers are put in front of people, my hope is that, um, individuals and systems and physicians, regardless department, uh, will, will galvanize and, and, and um, say, hey, listen, this is, this is something that needs to be addressed. And uh, th that'd be, uh, hopefully lead to some sort of impetus to start some grassroots initiatives in, in various hospitals and, and, and 
you know, even those people working in small centers have loved ones that are, are struggling <laughs> with illness. And um, regardless of what specialty you're in, you know, um, you're, uh, you know, you, we do, I have this perspective, we all do, we do well when everyone around us does well. And, and, and I mean this from the perspective of different departments and whatnot. So, um, so we want, it's something that I think that um, potentially can gain more momentum the more attention we we place on it. And such and so papers like this that are coming out and, and now into the surgical realm hopefully uh, start those discussions. I'm going to push back a little bit, JJ. Um, you know, I, th I think everyone on our this call agrees that this is an important problem. But... You know, I think part of what discussion uh, we're having today and something we've kind of skirted over is uh, a little bit about this, this, this stigma around mental illness and, and maybe even around mental illness among surgeons. I mean, I, you know, when is the last time um, any of us, you know, Rebecca, Dr. Hamid or Dr. Ball has ever, have ever talked to, you know, to our colleagues or, or know colleagues that have, uh, that have acknowledged their own perhaps struggles with mental illness, you know, that's not something that we, particularly in the surgical field, talk about because, you know, I think we, we all, to some extent, and, and again, I'm, I'm generalizing here a little bit, but I think to some extent, we all uh, pride ourselves on, on being able to deal with these tough circumstances, both in our training and then having to make decisions in tough situations, both in before, after, and, and during operations. So, you know, mental illness isn't something necessarily that comes up often in conversation. I, I will go out on a limb and I'll say that I think it's still, it's still stigmatized somewhat in, surgical, in the surgical community, even for surgeons themselves. So what do we do to actually help reduce stigma that surgeons might have um, towards patients perhaps with mental illness or even just the, the, the concept in general? And maybe, JJ, you could comment. I don't know if you have any surgeons as patients, obviously without, without t t getting into specifics, but what are some things that maybe we could do surgeons, uh, attitudes that surgeons have that we could work on uh, to try and reduce that stigma that we have? Yeah, it, it's certainly, that certainly is a stereotype. The, um, the surgeon, the old school sort of surgeon that that's tough as nails and, and no matter what um, is, is going to uh, keep up that persona. But you know, I have, I see things shifting. I, I do see things shifting. Um, you know, again, I, I have that that privilege of of working with sur young surgical residents, and um, it, it the changes that I'm seeing likely mirror what's happening in society at large. Like one, you know, not that long ago, people were, uh, and, and this is still the case, were um, not very comfortable to discuss their their mental health issues or challenges but uh in the in the this younger cohort of individuals that dialogue is shifting um to the point where people are quite open about their um uh, their 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 challenges and are actively seeking help much like they would for any physical condition and it's it's really refreshing um you know, on, on another level, I don't know if our healthcare system is ready for that, given the, the ubiquitous um, presence of mental health uh, conditions and, and the volume that we're anticipating of those seeking care, which which really is a good thing, though. Um, in, ter in terms of, you know, I, I did been, I did mention before, like half jokingly, uh, that many, many surgeons that I see would make excellent psychiatrists. And they have all... Um, you know, if you think about when people come to hospital, they're often coming really in the worst periods of their life. Thing that nobody's coming to hospital if they don't have to, um, and, and certainly not for uh, not for really positive things. And people are terrified, and people are you know people are, are suffering. Uh, they're worried either about their own conditions or or their loved ones, and um, surgeons are at the forefront of that. They're, they're the ones that are that are interfacing with these individuals and um, are being uh, are, are managing these really tough tough uh, situations so you know um, it, it does feel like that dialogue is is shifting I have colleagues that are 
uh, that approach me in the hallways. It might be by about their loved ones, but that opens up dialogue. That opens up some discussions, and you get the sense that um, people are recognizing the importance of managing um, their own mental health. Uh, COVID has been is really accelerated that discussion. I think it's out in the open how um, you know how COVID has impacted the healthcare system from a from a mental health perspective, from a quote unquote burnout perspective. And 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 people are savvy to uh, you know to that, you know, this is this is an issue. This is an issue. And if we don't if I don't pay attention to it, you know, I might be uh, I might succumb in some way to 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 those those concerns. Um, so there is that that shift and that shift in dialogue that's occurring. Um, there are there are those that don't want to speak with it and are going to bury it and and maybe feel like if they open up that door um that you know um things things might not look really good and 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 that might lead to some sort of negative follow you know my hope is my hope is that there are our our leadership of the respective hospitals and institutions are putting things in place that are making it easy for people to reach out if uh, if they can, but it's, it's a challenge for sure. I think that's beautifully said, JJ. And, you know, in, in closing, I'd like to thank you and Morad and Rebecca for your your time today. Um, you know, it's been a real pleasure. And I think this is a topic that we can only uh, uh, listen to and, and chat about more and more. As time goes on, I'm, I'm sure the podcast will be, will be very popular. Re- Rebecca, in terms of closing, I'd, I'd like to finish off with you. Um, Amir and I wanted to ask you specifically if you're going to leave our, our listeners maybe with one or two sentinel thoughts and things to, to think about on rounds tomorrow or in the operating room tomorrow or in the trauma bay or in the emergency department tomorrow. What would you, uh, what would you pass along? And thanks again. Oh, thank you so much for having us on. I think from doing this review, my biggest take-home points would be in meeting patients with mental illness, wherever that may be in your clinical setting, um, to meet them where they're at, um, to listen to their concerns and just take those extra few minutes to uh, listen to um, what their, how their mental illness is, is affecting their current presentation of you and understanding that um, they may have uh, a history of not having the best healthcare previously due to stigma around their mental illness. And it's, it can be big and brave for them to be coming to you and asking for help and meeting them like you would meet any other patient. Um, we're very lucky as surgeons to meet patients in times of vulnerability when they're really needing help and using that moment to both reach out to them for whatever surgical um, reason that they're coming to you, but also in respecting that uh, they have a mental illness and that is going to be um, a big part of their care and asking them what you can do to help them with whatever care comes comes next in, in their healthcare journey. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.